Good morning, and it's good to be back with you. Uh, I was gone last Sunday, as uh, some of you know, and others of you could care less. Uh, I was in Idaho uh, doing a workshop with a church that had had me on the calendar to come up there and, and work with their church about how their church can become a place of help, hope, and healing as we are here at City on a Hill. It's one of those great experiences. It's really interesting when I got there. I don't typically check on this kind of thing beforehand, but I got there, found out it was the second largest church in the entire state of Idaho. And a uh, number of thousands of people, as a matter of fact, before COVID, they were running six services on Sunday. And that pastor is one year older than I am. Now get this, he's been there 48 years. I've been here 37. And uh, I told him, I said, you're going to have to stop or I'm never going to be able to catch up to you. But just a good old boy, a wonderful guy, a pastor's heart. The church for, well, for, it was started in 1903, I think, was just a little white frame building sitting out in the middle of cornfields and wheat fields out there in, around Idaho, around Boise. And of course, Boise has become, uh, the, our Meridian, which is the suburb in which the church is, has become the number one place to live in America. That's what they designated a couple of years ago, and it is, it's a beautiful place. <clears throat> you have access to the mountains. Well, half of California has moved into Meridian, Idaho in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, and so that went from that just that little church in the middle of a field where farmers would come in on Sunday to a church of many thousands of people uh, doing six services on Sunday, and I had the privilege of spending some time with their elders, meeting with their elders, and they fully embraced the, the concept of transitioning into a hospital church, a place of help, hope, and healing. I went away for the weekend with their leadership team that will be a part of implementing this process, and they fully embrace this, and so now we're beginning the process here of walking through this transition with them to uh, help them to uh, try to uh, make this transition without too much chaos in their midst. It's interesting, before the, the COVID hit, they were doing six services. They've cut that back down to three services, and they've taken out half of the seats, and they still uh, are not able to fill up those three services. So, it, you know, they've been devastated there uh, as far as people's uh, attachment into the, uh, the public gathering as we have. Uh, this is happening all over America. It's really happening all over the world. But our context is right here in the United States, and churches are struggling. And as I said to you a few weeks ago, uh, uh, George Barna, the Barna Research Institute says, estimated that one in five churches in America will close their doors within the next 18 months. And it is already beginning to happen in churches all over. What persecution has never been able to accomplish, a virus has been able to accomplish. Now that's interesting. The enemy uses all kinds of things and takes every opportunity. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with us to chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. And as you're finding your way to the third chapter in Revelation, it's interesting to me that I have always loved a campfire. How many of you love a good campfire? Some of you go, what is camping? Okay, uh, you like a fire in your fireplace, I suppose. Uh, most of us do, if we're outdoors, we love a good campfire because there's just something comforting there's something calming about sitting around a fire. Fire brings warmth, it brings light, and it gives you a way to burn marshmallows. You know, there's just lots of interesting things about a fire. There's lots of good things about a fire. And it's interesting in Scripture that fire is often used as a metaphor for spiritual life, spiritual vitality, and even the very presence of God in the midst of His people. You remember in 
in uh, Exodus 3 that God revealed himself to Moses in the, the burning bush when he called Moses to go to Pharaoh. And it was with fire that God demonstrated and gave his presence to Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness by night. And Elijah, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible, when he was in that sacrifice kind of competition with the, the prophets of Baal and all that on Mount Carmel, that it says that when God came down, he came down as a mighty fire and consumed the sacrifice completely. And a buddy of mine in seminary preached on that message, and the title of his message was Burnt Dirt. I love that, because that's all that was left. When the fire of God fell, all that was left was burnt dirt. But there is one thing about fire, that if you don't feed it, it burns out. A fire has got to have a constant source of fuel. And so when you stop feeding a fire, it ultimately goes out. And when fire goes out, it can do none of the positive things that we all know fire can do. And so that really, in essence, is kind of the big idea, if you will, uh, to the, the last message that we're doing in this series of the seven letters to the churches of Laodicea that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John as he was exiled on the island of Patmos when he was about in about A.D. 95, about 60 years after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus has some words that he wants to give to the churches of Asia Minor, the seven major churches of Asia Minor. And as we've been walking through these other six churches, we've discovered every, simple, every single week that the Word of God is alive and it is active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword because it applies to us here today. And this particular letter this morning, the seventh one given to the church in Laodicea is no less appropriate for us. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, return, return what? Return to your first love because you've left me. He said to the church in Smyrna, remain, remain faithful in the midst of the difficulty you're facing. To the church in Pergamum, recognize that there's compromise that is going on in your midst. To the church in Sardis, revive, you, you need to come alive. To the church in Thyatira, he said resist, resist the false teaching. And last week, Derek dealt with the church in Philadelphia that was the church of the open door that had so much opportunity. And this morning, the word that Jesus gives to the church in Laodicea is that they are to renew. Laodicea had a problem because you see the fire, the spiritual fire had gone out. And so his word to them is to renew the fire, renew the passion, because your spiritual passion has become lukewarm. I want to say two things about this particular letter because this, I love this kind of thing. First of all, this letter that Jesus dictates to the church in Laodicea gives an illustration of the incredible value uh, as Bible students to study history, to study ancient history, the history of the ancient world, to study archaeology and the thing that archaeologists have discovered about many of these ancient cities in the world. If you're going to have a full understanding of the Word of God, those two things are going to be necessary. And in the church's letter to Laodicea, it is more evident than it is in any of the other church, any other letters, because Jesus in this letter uses so many cultural images things that were really actually happening in that city to draw analogies to the things that Jesus wants to say to them. And if you understand that, if you've studied history, if you've studied archaeology, then you begin to see how clever the Holy Spirit is as he takes those things these people would be very aware of and very familiar with, and then he draws that to a spiritual 
application for them. In fact, Derek is going to give you a couple of them that are, some are fascinating and one of them you're not going to like a whole lot uh, because it's one of those errors that we've often committed when we come to a particular verse in this text. So this message, what I'm saying is this message is in our wheelhouse today. The, the very thing that Jesus wanted to communicate to the church in Laodicea is something the church in America needs to hear absolutely right now as we are in this epidemic, as we're in this pandemic, whatever you want to call it, as we are in this time of really looking in the mirror and saying, am I in love with religion or am I in love with Jesus? Is this about spiritual life in me or is it just about cultural religious life? We're being challenged, every single one of us, to the very core of our being to ask and answer those questions of ourselves. And so I want to begin with a question. If Jesus is going to say to them, your spiritual fire is burned out and you need to renew, the big question is then why? Why is it so important that we keep the spiritual fires burning. And we're going to give you five reasons this morning out of this text. And the first one, folks, is, quite, is not about us. The first one is about Him. Because He is worthy. He is worthy of us who are Christ followers to keep feeding the, the, the fire of spiritual life and passion in us. Now, as Jesus often did in these seven letters, He begins His letter to the church by giving a a symbolic description of himself. In fact, the entire first chapter of Revelation is taken up with a symbolic description of the resurrected and the ascended Christ. And in each one of these letters that he does a description of himself, he pulls out a couple of images from the first chapter and uses them there because they specifically relate to something that he's wanting to say to that particular church. But it's interesting, in this letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus uses three analogies, three symbols, if you will, that he did not use in the first chapter. In other words, there's something so special that he needs to say to this, this church in Laodicea that there's nothing in the first chapter that really adequately communicates to them who he is. And so Jesus gives them three new images of who he is, and they communicate who he is, and they communicate that we ought to keep the fires burning because Jesus is worthy. Can I hear you say amen? And as a matter of fact, that's the first picture in verse 14. Jesus said, the one who is saying this to you is the amen. Now we use that word and we see that word in scripture a lot. Many of us don't really understand the etymology of the word, but it actually is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for truth. We just, when you transliterate, you don't translate it, you just take it and you just take that word into the new language. The word amen is a transliteration of the word truth. Truth, truth, amen, amen. In other words, it means that it is uncertainty, that it is an affirmation, and it refers to that which is fixed, which is certain, and is true. And Jesus himself in the New Testament often used that to introduce an important subject. In other words, when Jesus wanted to say, hey, you better listen up here because I'm about to say something that you really need to hear, he would start it off with, amen, amen. The King James translates that truly, truly. Others tr translate it verily, ver or verily, verily. Others translate it, amen, amen. Dr. E.V. Hill, the late pastor in Los Angeles, California, is one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. He said it this way, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen. Show enough, show enough. 
In other words, listen up, because I'm about to say something that is worth hearing. So Jesus is saying to them, the one that's going to say these things to you, you need to understand, I am the great Shonuf. I am the great amen. I am the great verily, verily at the end of the prayer. I am the seal of authenticity on the contract. I am the drop of the gavel in the courtroom of eternity. This is the one who is about to speak to you. He is worthy. The second image is that he is the faithful and the true witness. Continues on in verse 14. And what does a witness do? A witness gets on the stand and tells what he or she knows tells what he or she saw. With a true witness and a faithful witness, there's no hedging of the facts. There's no prevarication. There's no beating around the bush. If the witness is faithful and true, then you can take the witness at his word. This is what Jesus is saying. He is emphasizing what I'm about to say to you is not going to be easy to hear, but I want you to know I'm the great amen. I will speak the truth. I am the faithful and the true Witness, what I see, what I know, is what I'm about to say to you. And then the third picture, and I love this one, he says that the one who is the beginning of God's creation. In other words, the one who is the amen is about to speak to you. The one who is the faithful and the true witness is the one who says these things. The very one who is the beginning of God's creation. Now, that does not mean that Jesus, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, was the first thing created. Absolutely not. The word that is translated beginning here is actually the Hebrew word that means the origin. The, the origin. In other words, I am the origin of God's creation. And that is the testimony of the rest of the New Testament, is it not? That Jesus was not a created being, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, Word with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being by the Word, and without Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.16, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. In other words, Jesus is saying to this church, listen up. I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the origin of all creation, the one who is about to say these very difficult words. Why keep the spiritual fires burning, folks? In this difficult time, in easy times, in times of persecution, in times of, of, of have and the times of have not, why is the call of God to us to keep the spiritual fires burning? Because he is worthy. Now Derek is going to come and speak to you about because lukewarm is just pretty sickening. Lukewarmness <laughs> is sickening. Read verses 15 and 16. It says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. Got a hack a loogie. <laughs> Or hockaloogie out of my mouth. Exactly. Sorry. And we're going to work through this passage. Um, you're going to probably hear some things this morning that you've never heard before. This is, in my estimation, perhaps one of the most misinterpreted verses in the New Testament. 
Um, it's misunderstood because often, as James said a moment ago, it is read without historical or geographical context. And so it can seem like Jesus is saying something that he's actually not saying. Okay, so the interpretive question here as we approach these verses is, what does it mean to be hot water and what does it mean to be cold water? And by the way, that he is talking about water is an assumption. The text doesn't actually say water. I think it is water for what it's worth, and I'll explain why in a moment. But what does it mean to be hot or cold water? And maybe more importantly, why is being lukewarm worse than either of those? Mm-hmm. These are good questions to ask. So typically, this is the way that you'll hear this, is that the Christians who were all in are the hot water. They're the ones who are on fire for the gospel. They have notes scribbled all over their Bibles. They give weekly. They serve regularly. You know these people are Christians because it is very apparent in the way that, that they act, the way that they talk, the way that they engage with one another. It's, it's very clear. You are on fire for Jesus. You are the hot water. The cold water, on the other hand, are the pagans, Right? the non-believers, the non-Christians. And so what Jesus is saying is, I would rather you be all in or all out, but instead you're somewhere just in the middle. In other words, you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And just to clarify, in case anyone is unclear about this, it's never a good thing when Jesus is vomiting you out of his mouth. (laughs) All right? Not a good thing. Troubling. What is perhaps the most troubling this, uh, about this, though, is that when you think about it, it makes very little sense. Why is Jesus more upset with Christians who have just grown complacent in, his, in their faith than he is with rebellious, unrepentant people who have rejected him? Have you ever thought about that? Why is he saying, I would rather you be an unrepentant sinner bound for hell in eternity rather than someone who's just a little bit in the middle of the road with their faith. That, that doesn't make any sense to me with, with regard to what the gospel teaches. Okay, complacency is a very bad thing. We're going to talk about that in a moment. James is going to come up and talk about what complacency looks like, why it's not good, usually what the root of complacency is. But to be unrepentant, to be an enemy of God, is a far worse faith. So if this is not what Jesus is saying, then, then what is he saying? We have to look at the historical context. I'm going to show you a map on the screen And this map shows the Lycus Valley. So you can see uh, where it says Laodicea down at the bottom right, directly above it is a city called Hierapolis. And then to the east, the southeast, is Colossae. You've heard of Colossae. Colossae is uh, the location to which Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, the church in Colossae. And you'll notice that, that these cities are bound together pretty closely on this map. They form what the ancient world called the Lycus Valley. Uh, they were very... Um, They were very well-known cities, well-traveled cities. Laodicea being in the center was an epicenter for trade. It had a booming economy. There were all kinds of great things going on there. But the one thing that Laodicea did not have that Hierapolis had and that Colossae had, anyone want to take a guess? Water. Yes. Now, in Hierapolis to the north, they had naturally occurring hot springs. Hot water was invaluable in the ancient world. You could use it for all kinds of things. It could be, uh, it could be used for bathing. It could be used for cooking. It could be used for a, a variety of different uh, resources that, that were very important in the ancient world. 
Uh, on the other hand, Colossae was positioned down into the, the crevice of a mountainside. And inside that mountain, there was naturally occurring cold water. Hot and cold. Hot and cold. Okay? Now, Laodicea did not have either of these things. And being the wealthy city that they were, the resources that they had, they thought, you know what? We need to get some of that. We need hot water. We need cold water. This would be huge. If we could, if we could package this in such a way and make it available to the people, we'd be the greatest city of all time. And so what they did is they, I'm going to show you another picture here, they uh, actually developed a very um, robust piping system, and this is the ruins here uh, that you can see from... It's hard to keep that momentum going when you're picturing it. Exactly. Uh, this is from Hierapolis and Colossae. They were, they were piped in from both cities, but there was a problem. Apart from the distance, you can see that the inside of this piping has a lot of buildup around it, right? That was not the original piping. That's a uh, calcification that took place because the water that they were taking from either city was very dense in minerals. And so as that got smaller and smaller, and because of the distance, by the time the hot and the cold water got to Laodicea, guess what temperature it was? Lukewarm. A delicious lukewarm, loaded with minerals that would make you want to spit it out of your mouth. Now this makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Jesus is playing off of a very well-known problem in Laodicea. Both hot water and cold water, then, are good. They are both representative of the good Christian, the Christian on fire. He's saying, I wish you were either like hot water from Hierapolis or cold water from Colossae, but you're neither. You're like the water here, this crappy, lukewarm, useless, <laughs> purposeless water. And so I will spew you out of my mouth. Either be hot or cold. The question for you sitting on a hill is, what kind of water are you? What kind of water are you? Are you useful water? Are you water that has a clear and definite purpose? In other words, are you moving along in your faith in a way that is accomplishing the things that God has set out to accomplish in your life, or are you complacent and lukewarm, useless? Jesus says, lukewarmness is sickening to me. I spew it out of my mouth. Complacency is sickening to me. I vomit it out of my mouth. You see, we have to renew this fire that Jesus has given us. We have to. He is worthy above all things. That's enough to renew the fire. But secondly, because lukewarmness is sickening. Now, I'm saying lukewarmness and complacency kind of interchangeably. And the next question is, what does complacency look like? And James is going to come up in this third part and talk about that. The third reason to keep the fires burning is because complacency is deceptive. We move into verse 17 where Jesus uses a very key phrase. He says, and you don't know. In other words, Jesus is saying, there are some things that you are unaware of. There are some things that you have been deceived about. There are some very deceptive things that are going on in your midst. Now, we say around here, you don't know what you, what you don't know. Now, that's not rocket science, but that's, that's a lot of wisdom to that. We don't know what we don't know. 
and we can't know it until somebody tells us about it or until we discover it. And that's why we call the Freedom Group process around here a discovery process because these are not advice-giving groups, they're not counseling groups. They are a self-discovery process where 10 or 12 people enter into this experience together and each one of them is on their own discovery journey. People say, well, you know, I don't need a freedom group. And our question is, well, how do you know? You don't know what you don't know. Isn't that right? And how are you going to know what you don't know until you've done it and you've put yourself into a place where you can discover what it is you're ignorant about or that you don't know? Are you getting this? We sound like we're talking in circles, but we don't know what we don't know. And Jesus says there's some things that you don't know that you are deceived about. Now, all of that applies unless you're that extremely rare person who knows all things. And there are only one or two of us in the room, aren't there? And one of them is on stage. I'm speaking of my young Padawan, Grasapa. Oh, Grasapa, he knows all things. So here we are, okay. Unless we're an extremely rare person, we're all capable of being deceived. And so Jesus is kind of saying to Laodicea, as he says to us, let me give you a heads up. Let me give you a heads up about some things that you don't know. Some things that you are being deceived about. Some things that you're in the dark of. Some things that you're just flat dummies. Let me enlighten you about some things. And so Jesus in this text enlightens them about three things. And they're all to do with deception. The first one he enlightens them about is the deception of self-sufficiency. And I love the way that Jesus takes their day and time, he takes the things they, were, they knew, the things they were aware of, and then he brings that and he crosses that gap into showing them, shining a light on the message that he wants to give them. Verse 17, he says, Jesus says, you are wretched, miserable, and poor. Well, thank you, Jesus. That's encouraging. I'm edified by that. That's what he says. He says, there's some things you don't know. And this is one of the things you don't know. You are deceived, you are wretched, you are miserable, and you are poor. Now remember, Jesus introduced himself as the amen, the truth, as the faithful and true witness. He's setting them up for what I'm going to tell you is not going to be easy to hear, but I want you to know that I will not lie to you. I will tell you the truth about what I know and about what I see. And when I look at you, this is what I know. You are wretched you are miserable, and you are poor. Now, before he makes that statement in verse 17, at the very beginning of the verse, he tells them what they think about themselves. And then he tells them at the end what he knows about them to be true. In the very part, first part of the verse, he says, you say, okay, this is what they believe, you say, I'm rich, and I have need of nothing. But then he says, but you are wretched, you are miserable, and you are poor. Now, self-deception had caused them to believe some things about themselves that were the exact opposite of what they really were. Anybody here ever done that? Come to believe something about you, deceive yourself so much that what you really have convinced yourself is true about yourself is exactly the opposite 
of what is true. And here's how that happened for these Christians. Here's the history, history part. These Christians had begun to reflect so completely the attitude and the mentality of their culture, the Laodicean culture, that they had come to believe some things about themselves that were not true. In other words, they had become conformed to this world. Romans 12, 2, that says we're not to be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. They lived in Laodicea, and Laodicea had come to live within them. Now, here's the historical context. Derek has already kind of revealed it a little bit. Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city. All of history records that. It was a center of banking, it was a center of commerce, it was a center of finance. And in fact, just 30 years before this time, when this letter was written, an incredible thing happened in the ancient world. A big earthquake literally devastated the entire city of Laodicea. I mean, one of those huge earthquakes that are still fairly common in that part of the world came and literally leveled the entire city of Laodicea. Now. FEMA from Rome offered help. <laughs> FEMA sent a letter, the Federal Roman Emergency Management Association, see, I know my, I know my acrostic. FEMA said, well, we're going to come down there and we're going to help you. And you know what the Laodiceans said? Their city had been devastated by an earthquake. They said, keep your cotton-picking Roman money. We'll handle this ourselves. That's exactly their response. In fact, Tacitus, the Roman historian, wrote in his history of this event, he said, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of their own resources with no help from anyone. Tacitus, the historian, is telling us that's exactly what the Laodiceans said to the Roman government. Keep your money. We've got all we need to do this, and we will do this. You see, so filled with pride were the Laodiceans of their wealth and their self-sufficiency that they refused help. And now Jesus is saying to the Christians, you say that you are rich, but you are really poor, you are wretched, and you are wrong. Now, how much does that relate to us as Christians in America? Do you think it relates to us? Some of you go, well, it don't relate to me, I'm not wealthy. Don't relate to me, it might some of you other people there, you know, you preachers, you know, I'm sure you're flying around in your jet. I'm getting a new one next week, by the way. <laughs> if the crowds don't come back, we ain't getting it, though, are we? Okay, send your cards and letters, ladies. I'll, I'll send you a, a cloth that, I, that I'll pray over, and you can touch yourself with it, and, and you can get rich. No, seriously, folks, we're all wealthy in this nation. I, I challenge you. I've had the privilege of traveling around the world, and there's not one country I've ever been, whether it was industrialized or non-industrialized, whether it was a third world or first world country, that I didn't want to get down and kiss the very ground that I had left when I got off that plane when I came home. A good, a good experience is to travel around the world just a little bit, and no matter where you go, compare the lifestyle that we live, even the poorest, even the most humble in our midst, to those in the other parts of the world, and you'll every time say, I want to come home. You see, there's a reason, folks. There is a reason why the gospel is experiencing an explosion of, 
of, of spread in the third world because people in the third world haven't fooled themselves to believe that they are rich and that they are self-sufficient. They understand because of the deprivation of their lifestyle that they're in vast need of the Lord Jesus. And the reason the gospel is about as cold as it can be in America is because we have fooled ourselves into believing that because we live in the wealthiest nation on the planet that we ultimately are rich. And Jesus looks at us and he says, no, no, let me tell you, you are poor and you are wretched. Don't be, be careful that you don't begin to think yourself rich in, because you're rich in material things, that you're rich in spiritual things. There is the deception of self-sufficiency. Second, he speaks to them of the deception of self-denial. And he goes on and he says, and you are blind. So not only are you poor and wretched, but you're also blind. In other words, you don't even see the condition you're in. You don't even see that you are living your life in self-denial. Who is the easiest person for me to fool? <laughs> He's waited all week to sing that song. Yeah, I mean, we're always the easiest person to fool. I can fool myself easier then I can fool anyone. And I'm pretty good at fooling other people, but I'm darn good at fooling myself. It's easy for me to be blind about myself. You see, God has given us, for that very purpose, folks, God has given us three very important lights that if we are willing, will shine the light of revelation on who we really are, that will show us when we look in the mirror if we are really fooling ourselves because you see there is the deception of self-denial and these people were, were living in it. He said, you say that you can see, Jesus said, but you are really blind. The first light is the light of his indwelling spirit. John, Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And that's why we talk constantly around here about keeping short accounts with God, keeping short accounts with sin so that the Spirit of God is not grieved in the believer's heart so the Spirit of God can daily shine the light of revelation to show us those dark places where we are beginning to deceive ourselves about ourselves. There's the indwelling Spirit. There's the external Word. Hebrews 4.12 it says, for the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to, this is, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God has given us not only his indwelling spirit to shine his light on our, on our denial, he's given us the light of his word to give us knowledge about him and knowledge about ourselves. How many of you, quite honestly, have ever been opening the scripture, you've been reading the word of God, and all of a sudden, like a lightning bolt, that word's got off, jumped right off the page and says, you said, look in the mirror, buddy, this is you. If you've not had that experience, then there's a good chance that you're not in his word. There is indwelling spirit. There's the external word. And thirdly, there is wise counsel. He's given us wise counsel. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Not just any counsel, but wise counsel. 
So here it is, folks. Here, here's this danger of denial, which is exactly where the Laodicean church was. And the one who is the truth, the one who is a faithful and true witness, the one who will not lie, is saying, this is what you say about yourself, but let me tell you the truth about who you are. The deception of self-sufficiency, the deception of self-denial, and then, of course, there is the deception of self-righteousness because... Jesus says in verse 18, here's what you need to do. You need to buy from me some white garments. White is always used in the scripture of purity. So here they were, and here we are. We're talking about, oh, yeah, we, 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 we've got what we need. Uh, we can see who we are, and we believe this about ourselves because we're doing all these things, that we are self-righteous. And Jesus says, you are miserable, you are wretched, you are poor, you are blind, and you are clothed in filthy garments. You need to buy from me the white garments of righteousness. Is this an easy message to hear? Are you enjoying yourself? You say, I'm enjoying it because I don't have to do it. I just preach it. At least I'm in touch with myself. No, I'm, that's always our tendency, isn't it? It's always to look outside of ourselves and say, oh, yeah, well, that person is, you know, they're living in self-sufficiency, but they're really poor. They're, they think they can see everything, but they're really blind. Oh, they think they've really got it all together, but really what they are is just a dirty, low-down sinner. It's so easy for us just to look out there and, and evaluate everybody else, but how easy is it to look in the mirror and let the indwelling Holy Spirit and say, you're the man. And let the Word of God say, you're the man. And then really take a look at our spiritual life, our spiritual integrity, and say, you know what? These clothes, they're not even washable. They need to be taken completely away. And I need to get the garments, the white garments from the Lord Jesus. Listen, folks, Jesus is speaking to us today, not just to an ancient church in Laodicea. He is speaking to me and he is speaking to you. And then Derek comes on to deliver the crowning blow. <laughs> we are to renew our fire forth because if we do not, discipline is certain. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Listen, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, this is a certainty that you can absolutely count on in your life, that God will discipline you. When you veer off the path of righteousness, when you peer off, veer off the path that God has set you upon, discipline will be certain. Why? That's the question. And the answer is because he loves you. Because he loves you. This is a very biblical idea throughout all of, of Scripture. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's literally what the text says. Parents, I know that's a word that you don't love to use uh, for your kids and you don't want your kids using, but the true definition of stupidity in the Scripture is someone who hates correction. Now, maybe that's a word we should teach our kids, right, in its proper context. The blessed person, on the other hand, is the one who loves discipline, who, who looks forward to being corrected because they know that being corrected will put me back on the path that God desires me to be on. Jesus says this kind of thing in other places, too. John 15, verses 1 and 2, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, I don't know much about gardening, not much of a gardener myself. I do know that if you want a healthy growth to come out of a tree or plant, you have to prune it. You have to remove certain undesirable parts, parts that are not going to continue to grow well. Unhealthy aspects of plants or trees or vines or whatever it is that you are gardening with, whatever the word is for that, I don't know if that's the same word for gardening uh, or for for vines, but, but you have to prune it, you have to remove these parts in order for it to grow in a healthy manner. The same is true in our faith. If you are in Christ, you are attached to Christ, the true vine. And the Heavenly Father is the vine dresser, pruning us, removing undesirable parts in us that we might grow more and more like Him. Folks, that is discipline. That is what discipline looks like. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you get that? If you're not being disciplined by God, you're not a believer. That's what he's saying. Some of you are like, well, I have an easy life. God never disciplines me. (laughs) Well, there's only one reason for that, and it's not because you're awesome. (laughs) We're just not that great. We're not that great. It's because you're not his. Because he disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines those whom he has called into his family. Now, why does God discipline? Let me give you three reasons practically. This is not comprehensive, but just three quick reasons. Number one, to know the difference between right and wrong. There are times when I, in my actions, reveal I don't really understand right and wrong. And so God disciplines me to show me that, hey, what you're doing, not a good idea, dude. You need to do something different. Right? So that's the first reason, to show us that we would know the difference between right and wrong. Secondly, to know the difference between his will and my will. So sometimes it's not a matter of right and wrong. Sometimes it's just that I'm not supposed to be doing this. This isn't what he called me to. This, isn't, this is not the right thing. In my, um, in my undergraduate degree, I, I earned my Bachelor of Arts in Linguistics um, but, but prior to that, when I was still doing all of my basic classes, sort of building towards my degree, uh, I did the, the first two and a half years at, at, at TCC. I was actually a physics major. Um, and I, I loved, I've always loved and been fascinated with mathematics and, and physics, it's just sort of math and action, uh, trying to explain the world around us. And I always was so fascinated by that. And God had to humble me through that process. It's nothing that was nothing wrong with doing math or physics. It's just not what he designed he was, me to do. He was bringing you to repentance. He was bringing me to repentance. Degree. Amen. And, uh, and he brought me into a field that, that I, I think I was much more meant for. So sometimes it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's just a matter of his will versus my will. Third, he disciplines to protect us. Sometimes the disciplining hand of God, in fact, I would argue all the time, the disciplining hand of God is better than the outcome of what happens if we're not disciplined. So I think of my, my own kids. My kids, uh, we, we have a, a good-sized backyard Randomly, sometimes they want to play in the front yard. I cannot understand why. It's not even a good front yard. Um, but they want to go out there sometimes. And, and there have been times where they get a little too close to the street. We have a sidewalk. They get a little too close to the street. And I will say to them, if we go to the sidewalk again, we're going to sit and time out. And we're going to think about it for a minute. 
right? And eventually, because they're children, they, they're just, you know, kind of in their own world. And so I'll say, sweetheart, we got to come and sit down and think about it. Now, in their mind, they're being disciplined, and they are. And it's like, man, why is dad such a, a killjoy? It's because I don't want you hit by a car. Being, sit, sitting in time out for five minutes on the steps is far better than what happens if you get too close to the street and something dangerous happens. God disciplines us in this same way. His discipline is so much better, sometimes it protects us from a far worse fate. Listen, Jesus says renew, restart the fire of faith. Don't wait. There's a lot of positive reasons why you should, but if for no other reason, then you can be certain that discipline is coming if you do not. We renew because he is worthy, because lukewarmness is sickening, because complacency is deceptive, because discipline is certain. Last, we'll close here, because the way back is open. Verse 19, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. Be eager. Don't wait around. Get with it. Repent now. What are we repenting of? Lukewarmness, complacency. In other words, in other words, stand up, get off your rear end, and get with it. Stop waiting around. What translation is that? That's my own. Now listen, this is not about getting it right all the time. It's not about getting it right all the time. You're going to fail. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need grace. But is your heart oriented towards Jesus and his commandments? Those who love me keep my commandments. And I will love them. That's what Jesus says in John's gospel. Is your heart oriented towards Jesus or is it oriented towards the world? Now, uh, this is followed by, in this passage, I have to deal with this because it's here, another of perhaps one of the most misinterpreted passages in all the New Testament. Verse 20, look what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, you will hear well-meaning evangelists doing altar calls, calling you to repent, calling you to make a decision for Jesus this morning. Listen, Jesus is knocking at the, at the door of your heart this morning. Will you let him in? That's not what this passage is talking about. That's not what this means. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to non-believers here? No, he's talking to the church. He's saying, look, I'm on the outside of the church right now, which is A, a problem. <laughs> yeah. And B, I'm knocking, and someone better open the door, or what happens? Where does Jesus go? He's not on the inside with him. See, Laodicea was doing a lot of things without him, acting in self-reliance, self-righteousness, all the things that James just talked about. Jesus is saying, repent, open the door, let the Lord back in his house. Repentance is key for the survival of the church. Because here's the deal. Eventually, after knocking on the door, Jesus is like, you know what? I'll do my business elsewhere. I'll take the light from your lampstand. That's what he calls the churches in Revelation 1. I'll take the light from your lampstand, and I'll put it somewhere else. And it's interesting that when you read the history of Asia Minor, here in, this, in these two chapters, John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, right? We've just covered them over the last seven weeks. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and here Laodicea. They're all on this, this little convenient track. You can see this little route that would take you almost through all of them. Not even 40 years after this, a, a, a really important church father, the Bishop of Antioch, a man by the name of Ignatius, makes his way through this route 
through Asia Minor. He's actually en route to his eventual martyrdom in Rome. He even stops in Philadelphia. We have historical records of him stopping in Philadelphia and, and fellowshipping with the church at, uh, for a moment. He writes during this journey to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And guess what they are? Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Trollis, Magnesia, Rome, and then the bishop in Smyrna, Polycarp. Notice what's not there. There's no Pergamum, there's no Thyatira, no Sardis, no Laodicea. Now, we're not told why in Ignatius' letters, but all historians pretty much unanimously agree it's because there likely weren't churches there anymore, because their lampstands burnt out, because Jesus called them to repentance and they didn't. And not even four decades after that, they were gone. You see, Jesus is telling us, he's calling us to renew the fire because the way back is open, because he stands at the door and he knocks. The way back is open. But here's the warning. It won't always be. God blesses and works through the local church. It's how he accomplishes his ministry in the communities. But what happens when the church falls into such complacency that we're not even willing to let him back in and recognize where we've been operating out of self-righteousness and self-justification? The lampstand loses its light. Jesus says, I'll just, I'll just go elsewhere, where they are willing to repent, where they are willing to renew. We better renew ourselves. He is worthy. Lukewarmness is sickening. Complacency is deceptive. Discipline is certain, and for a time now, the way back is open. Pray with me. Father, how we bless you and we thank you for uh, just, again, another challenging message. We stand, Lord, here uh, deeply convicted, and I trust, God, that your Holy Spirit is working as he always does in the lives of your people and in various different ways, making those very personal and close applications in the hearts of each of us. And I pray, God, that we would not wait, that we would be eager, as you said, zealous to renew and repent where we have fallen into complacency. Revive us, Lord. Help us begin walking in the manner that you choose for us. We thank you for this time. What a what a, an enlightening, a challenging, a convicting, and productive time we've had over the last seven weeks talking about these churches and your words to them and how they so wonderfully apply to us as well. We thank you for that. Thank you for these people here this morning, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, y'all. It's been fun. So next week, we're, gonna, we're going to be uh, doing just kind of a standalone message and then um, be looking out for artwork. James and I are going to be doing a new sermon series starting two weeks from now um, over tough issues, tough issues that Christians face, and they are tough. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, um, but they are things that you are going to want to come and hear because they're issues that you likely face. They're issues that you likely have questions over and, uh, and, and probably have some questions over how we as believers are to respond and think about these things. And so that's starting two weeks from now. It's going to be fun. The reason we're doing this is because COVID has driven a lot of people away and we're going to drive the rest of you away. Yeah. Yeah. Seemed right. 2020, right? 
It's 2020, folks. <laughs> God bless you all. See you next God time. God bless y'all.